Let's pray together before we hop into this passage of scripture. Father, thank you again for this morning. Jesus, we praise your name and I pray that as I would uh, prepare this message for uh, your people today, Lord, that you would speak through my words, uh, that you would touch our hearts, Lord, and draw us closer and deeper into yourself. Um, help us, Lord, to live this out in a witness, a loving witness in our communities and uh, guide our hearts and minds today, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're getting now to the Red Sea crossing in our walk through Exodus. It's one of the, the most well-known passages of of the Bible, really. God calls them to camp. He tells them he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart more, which is again in sync with Pharaoh's own heart. He was hardening his own heart. God is allowing that to continue because he is going to uh, deal with uh, Pharaoh's very real human evil and bring it to destruction. So he's going to get the glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that he is the Lord God, he says. So Pharaoh changes his mind. He realizes he can't let these people go. He can't let this workforce go. He rides out with his best chariots and the rest of his army to overtake them. And as Pharaoh draws near, the people just burst into panic. They rebuke Moses for ever taking them out in the first place. And then the Lord calls them out onto the dry ground that he has made through the waters of the Red Sea. And this east wind blows all night to divide the waters and the land. And Israel crosses over in this miraculous moment. Egypt pursues. God throws their forces into panic and disarray and then allows the water to turn in on itself, which destroys Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And so the people pass through the waters now into their newfound salvation. Uh, and, and again, for many of us, a familiar, familiar passage, wonderful passage. What I like to do this morning is to take a moment to uh, teach a little bit about the idea of biblical themes and biblical patterns and the way in which the biblical authors are drawing some of these themes together to make some really remarkable points. So the first thing I want to talk about is to bring us all the way back to Genesis, back to the first book of the Bible. And in that book, uh, in the first page of scripture, God is separating realms. He's separating light from dark. He's separating water from water. And then he separates water from land. And days four, five, and six are about filling those various spaces with inhabitants. And so each day, God is separating and ordering out of the chaotic primordial waters and out of those chaotic waters, God is providing a, a safe and reliable place for humans and for his creation to thrive and to flourish. And so, and you get this sense of, of um, early on in scripture, the spirit hovering over the, over the deep, kind of over these primordial chaotic waters. And then God speaking and order coming as he separates things and brings uh, spaces into reality and then fills those spaces. So you have that kind of pattern set up. And then we get the next story of God and the waters. And that's Noah's flood. God, again, in this case, brings the chaotic waters back together. Uh, it's a reversal of his creation act in Genesis 1. He's allowing the creation to basically almost collapse in on itself, back into chaos. Uh, the separating of the waters now kind of comes back together. It's this act of, of judgment, just action and destruction upon the very uh, real, uh, real, sorry, just had a notification on my phone show up, uh, of his destruction upon a very real human evil. 
And God, out of that, saves a remnant. He doesn't destroy all of them. And now we come to the Exodus story, right? And we've had this pattern. And the Exodus story begins by emphasizing the chaotic waters of the Nile. That this is a threat of destruction to Israel. Threat of destruction to the seed of Adam. The one from whom will come, of Adam and Eve. The one from whom will come someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. And we're following that family lineage through the book of Genesis and now into Exodus. And so the Nile was about the destruction of the firstborn, the sense of the water being used for evil purposes. And now God's people, Israel, are trapped between Pharaoh and the Red Sea and God with an east wind separates the waters to create dry land. It's this Genesis pattern happening all over again, taking the the wild and the waste of uncreation and turning it into order and beauty and capable of bringing forth life for humanity. And that reference to the wind blowing is the same uh, in Hebrew. Uh, You can translate that word as wind or spirit or breath. And so just as you had God's spirit hovering over the chaos waters in Genesis 1, now we have God's breath or wind or the spirit blowing through the waters to create a dry land again. And, uh, And once again, Uh, Just as in Noah's time, the waters collapse in on themselves to bring about God's justice against evil and sin. Now he's bringing that uncreation power back again upon Pharaoh and his army, very similar to Noah. And this is why the Exodus moment through the Red Sea, in many ways, it's both an act of salvation, saving them, but it's almost like an act of new creation again, where he's recreating. And it's filled with this language and imagery and, and patterns, right? Of, of the watery chaos, God separating the water and dry land to save a remnant and also to judge human evil. And that pattern is carried forward throughout the biblical narrative. And I'm going to invite you to watch this bit video from Bible Project on Uh, biblical patterns as we continue on. So let's watch this together. We've been exploring how biblical narratives work, and it turns out stories in the Bible are like any other story. You've got to pay attention to the characters, the setting, and the plot. Yeah, these are the basic tools an author uses to help readers see the meaning and significance of the events. Now, it's time to learn one final skill that will bring all these elements together, how to detect design patterns in biblical narrative. What do you mean by design patterns? Well, the biblical authors have shaped all these elements, character, setting, and plot, to create series of repeated patterns that weave through story after story and tie them all together. When you notice these patterns, you'll see how different stories across the whole Bible have been coordinated to emphasize key themes. This sounds interesting, but how do you know how to find a biblical pattern? Well, biblical authors do it subtly. The best way to catch on is to watch them embed key words and images that link stories together. Take, for example, one of the main themes of the Bible, the complex and tragic human condition. Okay. So let's start at the beginning, where God is making a really good world. Right. Seven times it says God saw that it was good. So those are clearly important words. Now watch. God appoints two characters named human and life to rule this world on his behalf, and they're told that everything is good for them to eat. Except for the tree of knowing good and evil. So then the humans doubt God, and in Genesis we read, 
they see that it's good to take this knowledge for themselves. Then we read, they desire to become wise. And then finally, they take what they want. And everything falls apart. This story is about the human condition. And on its own, it's a really powerful story. But the biblical authors don't leave it there. They turn it into a pattern. It happens again with Abraham and Sarah. God brings them into the promised land, promises them a child. But they don't trust God. They get impatient. And we read the same words. They see their Egyptian slave. They take her and do what is good in their eyes. Do you get it? Yeah, the stories match. Then you get to Aaron at Mount Sinai, and we read how he sees and then takes the gold of the Israelites to make the golden calf. Or there's the story about Achan, who sees the gold of the Canaanites. He desires it and takes it for himself. This pattern highlights how one person's temptation can create suffering for many people. Exactly. It's just like the story of Saul, where we read that the Israelites see him. They desire him and take him as their king so they can be like all the other nations. And Saul's reign leads them to destruction. Or there's the story of David, which says that he sees Bathsheba. He desires her and then takes her and then kills her husband. And then David's family starts destroying each other. So you see, it's just one basic theme repeated over and over. These stories are all designed to show the temptation pattern. Which is kind of a downer. But the repetition builds up anticipation. Perhaps someone will come and break the pattern. This is why the stories of Jesus have been designed to carry the patterns forward to their climax. Really? Yeah. Like, what does Jesus say when he's faced with his greatest temptation to avoid dying on the cross? Uh, Not my desire, but your desire be done. So the pattern flips, and you have one person resisting temptation, and his suffering provides life for many. Very cool. Can we do one more? Totally. How about a big one? How God brings humanity through chaotic waters into a new world. It starts on page one, where God separates these dark, chaotic waters. Yeah, dry land emerges as a home for humans to flourish. Then the pattern reappears with the chaotic waters of the flood. God rescues this remnant, Noah and his family, through the waters so that they can step onto dry land and become humanity 2.0. Now, does that basic storyline remind you of anything else? Oh, right, the famous Exodus story. Yeah, exactly. That's when God saves his chosen people from Egypt by leading them through the waters onto dry land. While Pharaoh and his armies destroyed. The pattern repeats later with Joshua and the Israelites. They pass through the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. Yeah, you got it. So now you can see how later biblical authors will project this pattern into the future. Like Isaiah, he hoped for a new exodus with a new king leading God's people forward into a new creation. And in this repetition, the nations become the chaotic waters. Ah, so you can see how combining all these patterns brings us to Jesus. Yeah, notice how all the Gospels highlight that story of Jesus going to the Jordan River. He goes into the waters and back out again. His baptism. That's when God announces that Jesus is his son who will rescue the world from the chaos of our evil and violence by going into death and out the other side. This is why baptism became such a big deal for Jesus' followers. It's about participating in this ancient pattern, going through the waters of death, following Jesus into the new creation. These design patterns seem really important. Yeah, they're actually the main way biblical authors have unified these hundreds of stories together. And every pattern develops a core theme throughout the whole biblical story that leads to Jesus. Great. That's biblical narrative, which makes up over 40% of the Bible. Now, another 30% is made up of ancient poetry. And learning to read biblical poetry is what we'll explore in the next videos.
So with that described, let's see how the rest of the story plays out. Again, this is the act of, of God's salvation and creation for his people, rescuing a remnant through the spirit, uh, creating a place for them out of the watery chaos and into new life, which is so cool, hey, how that plays out. And it's also a picture, of course, of God uh, dealing ultimately with human evil, calling us out of sin, calling us out of the watery chaos and into new life on the dry ground of salvation. And you can see, just as the video described really well, how our baptism, our water baptism as Christians, is like a further repetition of that pattern where we appropriate all of that for ourselves and say, yes, this applies personally to me. It's a declaration of faith. At, the, at baptism, you are passing through the chaos waters um, of, of uncreation and sin and death and out of death and out of sin and, and out of um, out of out of that into new life onto the dry ground of God's love and the resurrection, uh, salvation life of Jesus. Baptism's like saying this story is my story too. This is for me. And now I'm going to live it out. And just as Jesus passed through a baptism, not to repent of sins, uh, but to stand in solidarity with Israel to be the true Israel that they could not be. We are now following Jesus through the waters as a picture of us having received him and responded to his grace of dying to our sins and then raising to be walked or to walk in newness of life alive with Jesus. And what John is, is doing in the Gospels, John the Baptist, is, is exactly this, right? The people, it's like they've gone back to Egypt in their own hearts. They're not ready for Jesus. They're not ready for Yahweh. And John is calling them to repent, calling them to an act of going through the water again for themselves. Just as their forefathers had at the Red Sea, John's calling them to be baptized, to come through the waters and out again, to prepare them to receive Jesus. And if you think about Exodus, how they're going through the Red Sea, to become a people who are marked by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that God has delivered them in the same way we come, you know, John is preparing the people to come through the waters to be prepared for the Passover lamb, Jesus. And in the same way we come through the waters of baptism because we have responded to and now want to live out and follow the Passover lamb who saves us, Jesus Christ. And we're going to actually do some water baptisms this summer. Uh, we have a young girl in our congregation who wants to be baptized. And so when that happens, I'd like to also extend the invitation to others. If you are interested in being baptized in water this summer, we would love to do that with you. Let me know and we'll talk more about what all it means. Make sure you understand what it means. And, and then we'll go down to Sandy Beach probably and do that together. Don't have a, a firm date yet, but we'll let you know. And if you are interested in being baptized, we'd love to talk to you about that. That pattern, though, continues on, and this is why in Revelation 21, verse 1, we're told in, in the new heaven and the new earth, when it's restored and, and remade at long last and reconciled and filled the glory of God, it says there's no sea. And again, this is apocalyptic imagery that John uses. It doesn't necessarily mean Oh, there's no oceans, right? Because if we're following the biblical pattern, we remember that often the water is this sort of chaotic uh, force and the sea is of, of, we're being told the sea of uncreation and disorder uh, has been undone and put to rest at long 
last. And in the new creation, that is no longer an element for us to worry about. There's no more sea, no more turbulent waters of uncreation, no more threat of destruction. Evil has been finally and fully defeated and ended, and we are alive and together at last with God in his presence. And so that's the biblical pattern here. Part of learning to read the Bible uh, is is discovering those patterns. And that's the, the real genius of the authors as the themes work together back and forth and speak to one another. And we, we understand what's being said, what's being picked up, which is really, really exciting. That video does a great job of, of highlighting how that works. So all of that said, what now are some personal points that we can make regarding this story? And there's two things I want to say, one about Israel and one about God. The first is about Israel. They have a taste of God's freedom, right? We talked last week about um, the Passover supper, then becoming a community together, the mixed multitude going out, um, the sense of being a new people, God guiding them, not taking them the way they'd be dangerous, taking them another way, God's reassurance of his presence. So they're starting to get a sense of what freedom and life with God is going to be like. And, uh, and then they just totally forget it. They just completely, <laughs> they just, they're so quick to forget God's goodness. Uh, and we'll see this often. They do this time and time again. But look with me at verses uh, 8 to 8, chapter 14, verse 8 to 10, but mostly verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. That's a, a sense of um, they're full of confidence. They're ready to go. They're full of reassurance, but uh, it doesn't last very long. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. He overtook uh, them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. Then Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And so, uh, you know, they're... They're going defiantly at first, full of boldness, and then they take a corner, <laughs> get to the Red Sea, they look behind them and see Pharaoh, and all of the confidence just drains out of them. The boldness just evaporates. And there's times in our lives where this is true, isn't it? You feel good, you're good to go, and then something happens, and you just, everything just drains out of you. What do we do then? Well, verse 10 and 12, 10 to 12. Uh, they cry out to the Lord, end of verse 10. This is a good thing, good place to start. They cry out to God, and then they turn around and rebuke Moses. Not so good. They blame him for the whole problem, blame him for leading leading him out of there. They show a real lack of faith and trust. It's like they turn to God for a brief moment, and then they just swing around and attack the authority figure that's in front of them. And man, this is this is true. We attack the authority figure. The person in leadership gets the brunt of it, right? I feel bad for the guy. As a pastor, I feel bad for the guy. Here he is trying to shepherd these people, and it's tough. People are tough. Leadership's tough. Uh, you know, as we've been navigating uh, all the logistics and things through through COVID, um, I've said to people a couple, like people have asked me, oh, is it really hard doing three services? And I said, well, it's, it's actually not too difficult because I was here all morning on Sundays anyway. We're just kind of doing the same thing twice and that's actually gone really well. And it's the recording ahead of time for Church Online that's more involved. Um, and the logistics regarding cleaning and, and all of that have gone very well. It's very easy. Um, having the welcome team prepared, having cleaners ready, all of that's gone so, so well. Um, so navigating those logistics have gone well. It's not the logistics that are difficult. You know what's difficult 
it's everyone having opinion about how the logistics should be, right? <laughs> and then everyone having an expectation and an emotional, you know, ferocity about how it should all go. Um, and that's okay. That is part of it. That is part of leading people is managing mostly expectations, largely unspoken expectations are the most difficult thing. And, uh, walking with people through that. So navigating the logistics of COVID have not been difficult. Walking pastorally with people as they navigate COVID is more challenging and trying to be pastoral in that. And it's good. It's a challenge, but I'm a bit tired. And actually at the end of July, we're going to take a, a week of holidays. And so next week, Pastor Velma is actually going to be preaching. So you can look forward to that. Also in August, wedding season ramps up for me. Um, some of you may be surprised. Yes, there's still people getting married. <laughs> um, I've got two in August, two in October, and some next year already who they've asked for. And each one of those, I have two to four pre-marriage counseling sessions I have to do. And all of that has, I have to have time to do all of that. Um, so it's a bit tough. And I remember last year, uh, almost every Saturday was a wedding. And, and so this year I kind of looked at Sarah and we said, well, maybe we should take some time before we jump into the crazy wedding season. Um, so that's what we're going to do. So I can sympathize with dear Moses here and, uh, and, and, you know, trying to navigate this. And I imagine it's tough. Leadership is tough. Um, so they, they call out to God. They rebuke Moses, the poor guy. So much so that by verse 12, they assume that slavery in Egypt would be better and is less risky than living in God's freedom. Isn't that interesting? I wonder sometimes, does living in our brokenness sometimes feel less risky than giving it all to Jesus and being set free by him? Of course, we recognize real brokenness, but like the people here, man, it's easy to blame other people, isn't it? Man, it's easy to blame that leader for that decision they made and, or to lash out at someone. It's easy to be caught in the panic and in the fear. Uh, really, in their lack of faith is really what it is. And as believers... There's times where we may feel confident and alive in Jesus. We need to remember there will also be moments when we are attacked and things get difficult. Um, there's no doubt the Bible, never, you know, we're not told that things won't be difficult. We're told things will get difficult. Um, we'll have difficulty in our lives. The key question is not, will I face difficulty? The key question is, when I face difficulty, how do I respond to it? What's actually going on in my heart? And so God uh, tells us, things will, there will be times of difficulty. So don't be shocked when you make a corner in the Red Seas there, or you feel Pharaoh's coming up behind you. The question is, how are you going to respond? Those things will happen, but how will you respond with faith calling out to God or with fear and rebuke and ignoring all that God's done for you? And so Exodus, again, it's like holding up a mirror, right? And saying, this is your story. You're part of this. How will you be? How will you respond to God and what he's doing? And, and what attitude will you have? Our attitudes become so important. So the people respond with, with fear, panic, uh, anger towards Moses. And then God responds. God responds. And Moses tells them how God will respond in our anxieties. And it's this beautiful, beautiful moment of God's provision and God's grace towards us uh, when we so don't deserve it and so don't understand it. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm 
and see the salvation of the Lord. Three imperatives for them. One, addressing the heart, fear not. One, addressing their fortitude, their willingness to remain in the situation. Stand firm in where God's brought you. And then alter your gaze. Shift your perspective. See the salvation that God is going to bring about for you. The people of Israel in verse 10 had lifted their eyes and behold, they saw Pharaoh. They saw the trouble. They saw the, the, the dangers. And now Moses is calling them to lift their eyes more and to see God at work. Even though that trouble's coming, to see that God is present. The question for us is where are our eyes focused? Right? What do you see when you look up? Are you focused on the tragedy of life? Are you focused on, on your past? on your mistakes perhaps or will you choose to look up and beyond and past evil to see where god is at work to see that he is working out his salvation even in the midst of difficult circumstances even in the midst of this covid thing god is at work see his salvation at work there's this beautiful moment in uh, the lord of the rings frodo and sam are journeying through mordor and they are overwhelmed by the evil and the darkness of the shadow as they're trying to go and to destroy the ring and there's this amazing moment where sam looks up and he sees this single star shining out uh, above the darkness around them and i want to read this passage to you it's about shifting our perspective they're peeping among the cloud rack Above a dark tor, high up in the mountain, Sam saw, saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of that forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Sam pulls his eyes up above the darkness around him and sees the clear light of the star beyond the shadow and it fills him with hope. And in this passage, Moses calls Israel to look up beyond Egypt that's coming, beyond the army, and to see the salvation of God, to fear not and to stand firm. What about you today? What darkness or anxiety or army do you feel is coming your way? And you look up and see the star cold and clear. See God working out his salvation to stand firm, to fear not, because God is at work. And it's in those moments of darkness and of sorrow and in fear that we can take a verse like verse 13 to heart. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Romans 8, 34 and 39 reads like this. Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anyone or anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or if we're persecuted or hungry or destitute? Or if we're in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things overwhelming victory is ours through christ who loved us and i'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from god's love neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither our fear for today nor our worries about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from god's love 
no power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And finally, in verse 14, Moses tells them, The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So friend, what are you facing today? Is there a darkness you're facing? Let's come together in prayer and uphold each other and encourage each other to fear not and to stand firm as we see, uh, seek to, to notice and pay attention to God at work in the difficult situations in our lives. Let's come to God today and, and give him our worries, that which our eyes can see. And let's ask him for grace and peace and wisdom to discern his salvation hand at work. Let's pray that God would divide the waters of the chaos in our lives and bring us through onto dry ground, bringing about his salvation. And let's trust him and follow him out of those waters and out of our sin into the new life and the new salvation that Jesus has for each and every one of us. Amen.